Good day. I'm Kirk Barber. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. And today I'm bringing you a special edition of JCMS Author Interviews. Today we're going to be looking at a supplement that appeared in the JCMS in July-August 2020. This supplement was supported by a grant from UCB Canada entitled Management of Plaque Psoriasis with Biologic Therapies in Women of Childbearing Potential. Today, I'll be talking to Dr. Jensen Young, a dermatologist and the medical director of the Phototherapy Education and Research Center at Women's College Hospital in Toronto. Dr. Young is also an assistant professor in dermatology at the University of Toronto and an associate editor here at JCMS. Well, thanks to Dr. Young for joining us today. Uh, Jensen, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Kirk, for having me again. Yeah, and and I'm really looking forward to having a chat with you about the article that you and your co-authors put in JCMS as a supplement, and you've developed a consensus paper for that. It was very topical and needed. And I'm assuming that your group collectively had some interesting um, conversations as you developed uh, uh, this consensus document. Yeah, you know, many of us, we go through many different uh, conferences and many ad boards, this is always a, the topic that, that comes up uh, consistently. Um, and so I think that really triggered how this consensus paper was uh, developed. So I, I think that to many of us who treat a lot of patients with psoriasis, the use of biologics to treat psoriasis in women of childbearing potential has been an ongoing area of concern with very limited practical guidance available to direct clinicians on their treatment decisions, with females representing about half of the psoriasis patients that we see in the clinic. This topic of treating the young, fertile female patient, it's a significant concern, and yet the published data in this cohort of patients is limited. To your point, Jensen, um, I can recall when the biologics first were on the market and we would have these discussions about how to treat women of childbearing potential. And we were frightened because your point is well taken. There was so little literature to give us any guidance whatsoever that uh, we all avoided it. And in fact, there were were many of our colleagues that uh, would not treat women of childbearing potential um, with biologic therapies uh, based on the fact that we had no idea what was going on. I was just going to say I was most impressed by your by the literature review that was done here. This is literature from 95 to October 29. So the, the last or 2019 rather, I, I want to congratulate you and your co-authors on the on on the development that uh, you put this uh, this subject through. It's really comprehensive and uh, very well uh, researched. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for acknowledging that. And I I should say that I was only a very small part of it. Um, I, there were uh, eight other dermatologists, most of whom were more experienced than, than, than me. And um, we all contributed a lot to, to the paper and uh, it's, it's not just my work. Um, And you know, I think that the reason that we went back so many years was that, as you know, that many pivotal clinical trials, they always exclude pregnant and nursing women. So it's very hard to find information that we wanted just from pivotal phase three trials. So we really had to go back to, 
to many different publications, including animal models, to to get as much information as we could. That was why there there are so many publications um, that were included in in this analysis. Yeah, and it shows. And I, and I want to say that the, the peer reviewers in the journal, as we put each of these supplement uh, articles through the, pre, the the same peer review process that we put through, uh, put all JCMS articles through, it's a it's a critical process. And the reviewers were were highly uh, uh, lots of praise uh, for the amount of work and the depth that that uh, you went into with regard to this. So one thing, let's um, maybe get into the content a little bit here and and i really enjoyed the first section actually and, and that was just the the, the way you approach the overview the effect of psoriasis on pregnancy and the effect of pregnancy on psoriasis and it was a nice capsule and um i wonder and and and, and the half of all pregnancies are unplanned and i think that was the critical bit here right yeah 50, almost 50 percent of all pregnancies are unplanned that's that's shocking right that's a shocking number which um reminds us that pregnancy is something that we as clinicians need to take into consideration when talking to and treating women of childbearing potential. And the fact is that when we see patients in, in, in the clinic, many, many, many women, they, they attempt to manage their, their disease on their own without seeking advice or even informing their healthcare provider upon discovering that they're pregnant. Um, you know, just as we need to be aware of the impacts that certain medications can have during pregnancy, we also need to inform our patients that an uncontrolled disease can potentially have detrimental effects on their developing baby as well. So I think it goes both ways. Um, so I think that covers the the, the main reason why we design such a section one uh, in this paper, yeah, yeah, and I and I thought and you know that the number of people that or number of women that went into remission during their pregnancy uh, was um, you know a lot higher than uh, what you note here. You again, it's fifty percent of women experience uh, clinical remission. There, I mean, the fifty percent of women don't and need significant help during the co course of their pregnancy. Yeah, I think that I still remember in, in residency, you know, studying that, well, you know, in psoriasis uh, during pregnancy, you, you might not need to treat those patients because psoriasis almost always gets better during pregnancy. But, uh, but, but that, that might be true to a certain ex extents. Um, but about 10 to 20 percent of, um, of patients um, during pregnancy, they experience disease flare or even worsening um, uh, of, their, of their psoriasis symptoms. And some might even have their, their pregnancy trigger the onset of psoriatic arthritis. And, you know, in addition, although it's quite rare that a subset of women they develop pustular psoriasis, which needs immediate treatment. So I think that it, it's critical to have conversations on conversations on this topic early and to perhaps um, implement a multidisciplinary approach to control their disease. Once they're pregnant, yeah. 
Yeah, and and of course, um, once you're pregnant, uh, you know the, the the issue of disease remission is well, it's great if it happens. If it doesn't, we need to deal with that. Um, and then in the postpartum period, it, the the drill is that uh, there's another potential flare, and in fact, the numbers are quite high. Yeah, the data shows that about forty to ninety percent of women they experience a postpartum flare, and you know, for, for this reason, our group encourages optimizing psoriasis care during pregnancy and proactively counseling patients during the postpartum period as well. Um, it, you know, if, if the biologic was stopped during pregnancy, unless clinically contraindicated, it is safe to resume the biologic therapy immediately after giving birth. Of course, when the, the wounds have healed, um, and so far there's some some limited data that that indicates that there is minimal transport of biologics into breast milk, and as a result, breastfeeding is a is a viable option for new mothers who are who are taking biologics. Um, so, if I can summarize, if we're dealing with women of childbearing potential. Um, women planning pregnancy, we have that individual on a biologic. We can keep that individual on a biologic because we got a pretty good idea for the, that the biologics are safe early in pregnancy. There's there's the convention to consider stopping at about the 32nd or 33rd week as the placental transfer of these antibodies occurs, and then restarting as quickly as you say, as we can, as long as we know that infection has, the risk of infection has passed. Is that, is that a pretty good summary of our convention today? I, I, I think you summarize it quite well. Um, I, I don't know if we can go as far as saying that biologics are safe during pregnancy, but I would say that um, what we have learned so far is that maybe biologics are not considered unsafe. So I think that being safe and okay. unsafe, um, it's a little bit different. You know, unfortunately, there's minimal data in, in humans on, on the topic of continuing biologics throughout the later stages of pregnancy. Um, data shows minimal transfer of IgG antibodies in the, in the first trimester. Um, but at around 16 weeks, the placenta begins expressing the neonatal FC receptor that actively transports immunoglobulin from mother to baby. And that transfer peaks during the third trimester of pregnancy. And, 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 and physiologically, that provides the infant with the antibodies that are needed for immunity during the first three to six months of life as their own immune system matures. But at the same time, when a pregnant woman is receiving is receiving a biologic, then those those antibodies are, are being transferred um, in the second and third trimester to to the infant as well. Um, with, with the exception of sertilizumab, um, antibody-based biologic therapies are built on the IgG framework and include the FC portion. And therefore, they, they are transported uh, actively across the placenta during the second and third trimester. So it's the, the significance of, of 
the the presence of these biologics in 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 the fetus during the second and third trimester as i said so far there hasn't been any data that has demonstrated any teratogenic effects on on the fetus um but i i don't know if we can conclude that biologics are safe when 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 the fetus exposes to it during the second or third trimester well we have a little bit of information from the um, ibd folks right i mean and, and and the idea there is they keep their patients on drug uh, or many of them on drug throughout their pregnancies because the calamity of of uh, disease exacerbation during pregnancy can be quite devastating so people do it and it's how we've learned yeah with the exception of uh, infliximab um, which is often stopped um, in the third trimester by by GIs in the in the treatment of IBD um, and, and 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 also in the, in rheumatology as well that I think rheumatologists have had more experience in, in treating patients with uh, rheumatologic diseases with biologics than we have. And I think they're, they're more comfortable with um, continuing biologics during pregnancy than, than dermatologists are. And, and, and that is why with this paper, we've included some of the data from, from um, both the rheumatology and, and the GI literature to make this paper, um, I guess, yeah, more, more robust, I would say, yeah. Well, it's very complete. And in table two is the, the summary of biologic therapies used in women of childbearing potential. It's very complete. So now if we can go for a minute into um, mm -hmm. your consensus statements. It appears from the numbers that in your consensus statements that the majority by far uh, strongly agreed or agreed to each of the the published uh, statements here. It must have been been quite the job to get uh, a group of people together to go through each of these uh, individually. <laughs> As you know, we, um, you know, many of us within that group um, are, are, are quite uh, strongly opinionated, <laughs> and uh, to come up with uh, with consensus statements, uh, as you alluded to, it's not an easy job. Yeah, so many of the statements we had to revise and to to vote again, and uh, some of the statements were not included in in the final twelve that reached consensus, but they were included in the in the supplement. Many of the statements are not black and white, right? It's it's not something that is so easy to, to agree upon, and as you can see, that none of the twelve statements, all nine of us, strongly agree with uh, with 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 any of the statements. It was a, it was a challenge and it, it, it was a, a process that took a lot of time and a lot of uh, discussion to revise the statement to, to make everyone feel that the statement really represents how they envision. I'd like to spend a minute on two things. Um, the, the eighth and the ninth of your 12 statements. The eighth is with regard to is in the treatment consideration section. I'll just read it. 
um, based on real-world experience in animal toxicology data, TNF-alpha and IL-1223 inhibitors have not demonstrated teratogenicity or increased risk of negative maternal fetal outcomes. Experience with IL-17 and IL-23 inhibitors in pregnancy is limited. And your result was three people strongly agreed with that statement and six agreed. Nobody disagreed. <laughs> yeah, so... I think that this is uh, actually one of the statements that has um, a- achieved the, <laughs> the most consensus uh, out of the 12 statements. We, we do have limited real-world experience and animal toxicology data um, that's available and that they did not suggest that TNF-alpha inhibitors or IL-1223 inhibitor are teratogenic nor do they increase the risk of negative maternal fetal outcomes. Um, but at the same time, that with the, the newer biologics that are available, um, such as IL-17 and IL-23 inhibitors that are becoming more and more popular, we really don't have much experience um, in these agents to make a statement as to whether they are teratogenic or not. So it, it took us quite some time to arrive at that statement. And um, maybe many of us, we feel that IL-17 and IL-23 inhibitors, they are also relatively safe in pregnancy, but we just don't have the data to make a statement of that. So we're sort of where we were with the introduction of TNF-alpha. Exactly, yeah. So I think that maybe in five or 10 years, we'll have a second draft of of this paper. And a better idea. So of course, there's always another person involved in this, and that's the neonate. So it takes me to the consensus statement number nine. And it reads, with the exception of sertilizumab, infants exposed to biologics during the last two trimesters of pregnancy may have detectable drug levels, and administration of live vaccines is not recommended until after six months of age. And in your group, we have one person that strongly agrees and eight who agree. Help me understand the deliberations here. When you look at the all the, the 12 statements that we have, uh, this is perhaps one of the statements that we all pretty much agreed on. Um, so all of us voted either agree or strongly agree versus most of the other statements. So the first part of the statement, so sertilizumab, it, it's the only biologic that we use in psoriasis that was studied in, in pregnant women. Um, as you know, that it, as I, again, as I said earlier, that with um, clinical trials, um, women who are pregnant or who are nursing, they're excluded from, from clinical trials. But in uh, one of the trials that was performed with sertilizumab, uh, women of at least 30 women who were at least 30 weeks pregnant who were receiving sertilizumab were included in this trial along with their newborns. So in this trial, uh, blood samples, they were collected and assay for plasma concentrations of, of drug at uh, delivery at uh, four and eight weeks postpartum. And uh, results showed pretty much that the maternal drug levels were in the expected range, uh, but in infants, there were undetectable drug levels pretty much 
at birth and at four and, and eight weeks. So I think it provides a lot of comfort to clinicians and, and to patients that um, there's, there's really very little transfer of drug from mothers to infants with uh, sertolizumab. So that, that's why we, um, we included that statement. And then I guess the second part of this statement, it's about um, vaccination. And of course, we at the, back, at the backs of our mind that we are always thinking about this, um, this mother who received infliximab during pregnancy near, near the end of, of, her, um, of her, her, her pregnancy. And, uh, and the infant received a BCG vaccine who eventually died after getting that vaccine. And you know, this is something that we always think about giving a live vaccine to an infant uh, whose mother received a biologic agent during pregnancy. And, um, and I, I think that, that that's the only case that, that that has been published, um, uh, by the way. And, um, but it is something that we always think about, okay, well, if the mother received any type of biologic during pregnancy, especially near the end of, of the pregnancy, whether the child should receive um, any live vaccination. And that's why we came up with the statement that the, the, the child should wait for at least six months before he or she should receive that uh, live vaccine. Well, six months because the IgG antibody will um, be destroyed and not influencing the child's immune system. And and the other um, point that uh, this makes it quite distinct from the TNF uh, alpha uh, inhibitor work, which shows significant uh, transplacental uh, transfer up to the point, uh, and I think you mentioned in the article, in the third trimester, it can reach approximately 50% of the maternal uh, levels. So, um, you know, clearly, um, I can see why you have consensus uh, in this statement. It's because it, this is so distinctly different than what we've been working with uh, in our convention. And probably the reason that in 2020, the BJD guidelines consider uh, sertolizumab as the first line choice in women planning conception. Kirk, I think one thing that you've seen many patients and I've seen many patients and I think that, you know, despite the fact that you tell, you tell pregnant women that, by the way, this drug has not been shown to be harmful to your child, I don't think that provides enough assurance to the pregnant mother that, well, you know, because the fact that you don't have enough data to show that it is not harmful to my baby, I just don't want to take that risk. I don't want to. I don't want my baby to have any to have any drug in his or her system. And I, I you know, I, I think that's some. I think that's something that goes through many pregnant women's minds. I think, um, and and I. You know, we, we talked about the fact that we currently we don't have any data to suggest that any biologic um, which has demonstrated teratogenicity in, in fetuses. Um, but at the same time, if a patient had a choice, they I think they would rather not be exposed 
their their infant to any 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 drug if if that's an option. Yes, and and something that again we need to discuss all of this early and not late after someone is pregnant and already on their drug. Um, so so the we've got the data on pregnant patients, which as you point out, we exclude from uh, a previous right. research trials. And uh, it's got to, it's, it's got to bring some comfort to people. Not if they're, even if they're not worried about themselves, about their neonate right. uh, for sure. And, and they can vaccinate as they wish. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, there, I think that that's another, a whole other discussion, of course, but, but the idea is the fact that there's no, there's no detectable drug level in their yeah. in their newborn. As your point, has got to be got to be good. And and tell me to go one step further. Let's talk about breastfeeding for a second, because that would be the other thing that would be of concern to a young mother. So um, so Kirk, to your point, in fact, there's very limited data in this topic of the presence of of biologic in in breast milk, and with that limited data, that shows that there's minimal transport of biologics into into breast milk in general so as a result breastfeeding is a viable option for new mothers who are taking biologics but amongst all biologics that we use to treat psoriasis sertolizumab is the only one that has performed a prospective study to support that there is no to minimal transfer of drug into breast milk so again another thing to talk about um, with that very, very, very first discussion. And a reminder that we should all be having that discussion um, in any woman of childbearing potential that we're considering starting on any of the biologic agents. It's a, it's a good reminder. Absolutely, yes. So now um, we've talked a lot about this issue. And, and as I pointed out earlier, it, this is the best piece of evidence we have in you know, mid twenty or towards the end of, of twenty twenty, um, and I and I think that um, the, the the management of plaque psoriasis is in women of childbearing potential has been significantly advanced uh, by the work of you and your colleagues. Is there anything else that you um, want to talk about that came to light uh, during your deliberations with regard to treating this? Uh, group of patients. I, I think that to summarize our discussion here, how we decided to embark on this project was, was mainly because we wanted to have a full understanding of how we could provide enough counseling and education to women who are either considering pregnancy or are pregnant to give them the best advice that we could based on the the evidence that we have. I, I think that that's essentially how we decided to to start this 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 project. And you know, to to, to, to summarize it, I think that um, in, in order to have a healthy baby, we need to have a healthy mother. And so it is ideal to have low disease activity or or remission going into pregnancy and during pregnancy 
and after pregnancy. So I think that the the goal is for us is to come up with ways that can help patients achieve that. Fantastic. I mean, it's all about communication at the end of the day and education. So um, thank you for spending the time with us. Uh, I think you've summarized uh, our challenge very well. Thank you, Kirk, for having me. That was Dr. Jensen Young, the Medical Director of the Phototherapy Education and Research Center at Toronto Women's College Hospital. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Young. The article itself will be available to you uh, free of charge for three weeks. It can be accessed at the JCMS website once the podcast has been posted. I'm hopeful that you'll subscribe to JCMS Author Interviews as it is really a pleasure to bring these topics to you. And the greater the audience, the more joy we have in doing it. This podcast was sponsored by UCB Canada as a special supplement to the JCMS Author Interview Series. I'm Kirk Barber. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, be good to each other.